Happy New Year and welcome to Conspiracy Club. I'm Tom. And I am Emir, a happier person because it's the new year. You're tuned into CC 101. <laughs> you are not. You're, you're tuned into just CC. Yeah, Comedy Central. Yep. <laughs> uh, so this week is the first, we're going to start the first part, um, as you already may have heard, of our Jonestown series. It's going to be about four episodes or so. Um, yeah, and I put in a lot of effort into doing the research for this, and I think that these are going to be some pretty solid episodes. And I think even if you are familiar with Jonestown, you're going to be very acquainted with it by the end of it. You're going to be almost like family members. Like, it's like you were there. When you mention fear, I mean, I don't mean to be in any way offensive when I make the statement, but I would assume that these are people who, for whatever their reasons, just wanted to believe everything he said and followed him almost blindly. I mean, otherwise that would not really hold much water, would it? This is true. Yeah. Is this part of the operation of the church as you see it? In other words, getting people who, frankly, from an intellectual standpoint, are just followers? Yeah. Yeah. Do you consider, now when you're talking about the temple itself, you've got, you've got family in Guyana right now. Who is there? I have my, uh, my mother, father, brother, and sister over there. Four people down in Guyana? Uh, plus my sister's family. Well, so I, just practically all of my family is over there. Now, when Charles Gary was on, he had just come back from Guyana, and I remember specifically the word he used to describe it. He said it was paradise. Uh, why would you want to get people out of paradise? So before we begin, I want to extend my immense gratitude to, to the Jonestown Institute, who is the source for like everything you want to know about what happened with Jim Jones and the People's Temple. These next few episodes we're going to do will be populated with clips all pulled from the more than 950 audio tapes recovered mm. following the tragedy. These 950 tapes represent only a portion of those that actually existed, and many were destroyed within a month of Jonestown's end. And before we start... Um, I think a lot of people are at and are kind of wondering, and maybe even even you are, um, the looming question of why so many tapes existed in the first place. And the first reason being that People's he Temple was a rapper. No, the no. first reason being that the People's Temple had three locations, but Jim Jones was only one person, um, and that was the guy that everyone you know showed up in droves to see. The answer to the issue was to record sermons and play them at the other locations. The second reason is that Jim Jones wanted to create a documentary of his life and the development of People's Temple. The tapes were also used in Jonestown to record his daily news readings, and many were heavily edited in an effort to correct himself. Uh, and really, it boils down to this. Jim Jones had an immense ego, and he wanted to make sure that his, word, his words would echo forever throughout the halls of human tragedy. And they have, but do not exist in this, they don't exist in the same light that he prob probably hoped they would. And these episodes will see heavy use of the clips that he recorded on the tapes to tie in the content of the episodes and to showcase the madness behind it all. And if you want to do more research on Jonestown or listen to the hours upon hours of tapes that they have collected and transcribed, you can visit the Jonestown Institute at jonestown.sdsu.edu for more. All right, so I'm going to say it because Tom won't say it. I just hit the mic, sorry. Parental advisory. Yeah. Because it's going, it's going to start kind of upbeat, but then I feel like as we go along... It's going to get fooked. Yeah. As I think as Viciously. the thing gets corrupted, it will get more and more yeah, messed it's up. It's going to be a sad ride. 
All right, so let's get into it. Let's deep dive. Um, this first part is the inception. So Jim Jones was born on May 13th, 1931 in Indiana. In a country addled by the Great Depression, Jones grew up without poor or grew up incredibly poor living in a shack without plumbing. Jones was an avid reader. He studied various fascist and communist leaders such as Stalin, Marx, Mao Zedong, and Hitler. He mm. also cultivated an interest in religion. Many believe this was in response to his inability to make friends, and those who knew Jones growing up recalled that he would hold funerals for animals on his property. Okay. And allegedly once murdered a cat. All right, so... That's one of those things that, like, the serial killer thing, yeah, like, that's they, usually, they hurt animals. I mean, it started off not so bad, but the murdering the cat part is where it's like, okay. Yeah, Jones, some even, some reports said that he even uh, held sermons as a child on his property uh, to his friends, which is also weird. I feel like his... And is, his do they... Are you going to talk about his parents in any way? Like, are they I'm talking about his dad. Um, okay. Briefly, his dad was, fruit. and so some. So he already grew up, you know, poor and poor, dealing yeah. with these issues where he was, you know, interested in communism and these like very bad, terrible leaders. Um, and he was like doing things like holding sermons and doing animal funerals, which is not normal child behavior. And this all. was only allowed to progress because he went unchecked by his parents. He would later claim that his father was an alcoholic clansman. Despite this influence, Jones had great sympathy for African Americans due to his own feelings um, of being on the outside. Okay, that, that's I don't know how to feel about that. His his relationship um, with the black community is a huge focus of his life and the development of Jonestown and the People's Temple. Um, nevertheless, in 1948, Jones graduated high school with a high, with high honors, and the following year, he married his wife Marceline. He would later attend Indiana University and then Butler, where he finally earned a degree in secondary education. So, her name is Marceline? Yes. Is she... That might be a future thing, but is she going to be present in the story? Uh, yeah, somewhat. Okay. So, humble beginnings. We know that he grew up poor and all that stuff. Uh, and we mentioned that he was always fascinated by communism, but he was also frustrated by their harassment throughout American history. Um, keep in mind, he's like around this time of his development um, into adulthood. He's this when the uh, the Red Scare, McCarthyism, mm, all that stuff is happening. Yeah, and he wanted a vehicle for which communism could sort of penetrate the greater American society. In a biographical recording, he remarked, "I decided, how can I demonstrate my Marxism? The thought was infiltrate the church. So I consciously made a decision to look into what prospect, or look into that prospect." In 1977, his wife told the New York Times that as early as 18, when Jim Jones had watched his idol Mao Zedong defeat the nationalists in the Chinese Civil War, Jones knew that the way to achieve social change was to mobilize people through religion. Okay, well that is usually the way that people get changed, especially before his time, so he's only learning from ancestors. Mm -hmm. In 1951, Jones began to attend meetings for the Communist Party in Indianapolis. And in 1952, Jim Jones became a student pastor in Somerset South, uh, at the Somerset Southside Methodist Church in Indianapolis. This didn't last um, very long, however, as Jones left due to the church barring him from involving African Americans into his congregation. Okay, uh, you got me kind of on Jim's side at the start, and I'm a little nervous. I, I think there's uh, definitely some sympathy to be had for some of his. He was a very big player in the civil rights movement. Um. 
but he leaves because of that. He's frustrated and he starts his own church in 1954, which he called the Community <laughs> Unity Church. I'm not going to lie. That's the biggest baller thing you can do. Start like, your own oh, church? I can't, I can't be in your church? All right, fuck you and your church. Or sorry, fuck you and your church, mate. Start my own church. Um, he'd previously witnessed faith. We got Kool-Aid over here. <laughs> we'll get to that <laughs> in uh, a few more episodes. So Jones had previously witnessed a faith healing service at the Seventh-day Baptist Church and felt that these processes could attract more people to join his. Um, they could also generate income and help him achieve his goals of greater social influence. Jones and other church members purposely faked healing, uh, faked healing because they knew it would benefit the church. I'm Elder C.C. Hill out of Bakersfield, California. I love you. Otherwise, I wouldn't give you this that would uplift you. I want to know you, want you to know things that have happened to me since I know Jim Jones. First you start at, judgment starts at the house of God. That'll be at my house. First, he healed me of a cancer. He also healed my sister, who had been wearing a brace for 17 years. Healed my wife. Of heart trouble and eyes. So they would fake themselves being healed. Yes, they would. Uh, yeah, so people would come in with like cancer or other other afflictions, and he would heal them. Real cancer or fake cancer? Real cancer. So they would come in with real so cancer. So often, pretend they, to often be these people would be plants. Um, they're in and is in a certain so in his inner circle. So I'm saying, do they actually have cancer? Or are they? Acting I think there like were some do? people that he may have picked might have actually had cancer, but they obviously they weren't healed. Okay, but the other ones who didn't were like plants. I have cancer. Yeah, or oh something my else. God, or I, I can can't walk. walk. Yeah, and then they get out the chair and be like, I can walk. I'm not gonna lie, he's 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 pretty good at finessing. So in 1956, Jim Jones bought the first church building that he would use, which he stationed in a racially diverse neighborhood. At first, he named the church Wings of Deliverance, but later renamed it People's Temple Full Gospel Church, which was then nicknamed People's Temple. That is a better church name than Wings of whatever. Wings of Deliverance. Wings of Expansion or whatever, you know, globalism and whatnot. So let's get into the growth of this church. To increase publicity, the People's Temple organized large religious conventions with other pastors. He was successfully able to mask his social aspirations with this religious movement. These conventions that he was firmly at the center of drew as many as 11,000 people. Jones and these other veritable con artist preachers conducted sham healings and enamored attendees by revealing private information on individuals. So they would travel the neighborhood and find people that were going to be there, and he would go through their garbage, or they'd talk to people that they knew and spy on them, getting information from them, or they would just have plants in the audience again. So and he's so th- like the ultimate, he's like a finesse at the start. They would, yeah, so these people would, so in these, you know, sham private information revealings or whatever. Scamming. They would reveal information like addresses, phone numbers, social security numbers, Damn. which was all discovered, like I said, beforehand by by them going around through their garbage, through all these other means, or even by hired private investigators. Damn. He performed other miracles as well. Spirit that is speaking to me, I energize you. I give you energy now to speak with a audible voice what I'm hearing in my ear. Spirit that's in that lost world speak with an audible voice. 
louder, louder. in Russian you're saying forgive me be not angry I forgive you we are in America in this incarnation we're in America speak English help me Yes, I understand. You're a betrayer of mine. You betrayed me. When did you betray me? I'm not sure it was distinguishable to them, but you're saying you betrayed me in 1917? Yes. What do you wish me to do for you, child? <laughs> you need a body. So it seems like at the start that he, outside of the killing the, the cat thing, seems like he's not like he's trying to make change in the right way like he's trying to you know do change but like extreme like he wants extreme radical change so he's like well we also have to consider that his main goal throughout this he was just using religion as that yeah but but if, he did have yes yeah, civil rights sympathies yeah like you know what i'm saying like he wasn't i feel like it started off that he wasn't shitty and then it just at some point well you know so, kind of going into that, despite his bogus practices, the temple stressed egalitarian values, something we touched on briefly when discussing his feelings toward African-American involvement in his church. Additionally, he would ask members to dress casually so that the poor of the congregation would not feel uncomfortable or intimidated. And going back to the African-American involvement, their membership in the temple reached nearly 50%. Damn. And to continue to grow these numbers, Jones hired African-American pastor Archie, Ilge, Archie I. James, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, and so, Pastor James was one of the first members to commit to Jones' socialist collective program. Collectives, by the way, are groups of entities that share or are motivated by at least one common issue or interest or work together to achieve a common objective. And so, these are kind of like a co-op, but with a more economic focus. Mm -hmm. The People's Temple at this point was not seen as being culty or anything like that at all. It doesn't seem like it. Outside of the finding out people's phone numbers and stuff and... You know, doing the fake miracle. Well, every pastor does the fake miracle thing, so. They even joined the Christian church. Oh. And renamed themselves People's Temple Christian Church Full Gospel. How the, how do you, so you have, you have to go through a process. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, I know so. Y yeah. Yeah, because. Uh, I guess they, yeah. they were okay with Jim Jones at this point. Well, he doesn't, like, looking at it, like, reasonably with logic, he does not seem terrible. This was done successfully to raise membership and restore their reputation. 
Okay. Because there's all that sham bogus stuff yeah, going on. Yeah, you know, the scammer thing. In February 1960, the temple expanded their community programs. They opened a soup kitchen, grew their rent assistance programs, job placement services. They offered free canned goods. They had clothing drives, and they even offered coal for winter heating of homes. Damn. The temple is distributing around 2,800 uh, 2, meals per month. Like I'm saying, like he's actually, like he doesn't seem shitty. Like he's, no, it starts out and it definitely does not seem that like way. He seems like a good guy. It's I feel like it's gonna fall into the same thing that it always falls into with rocks, where he was like, yeah, well, rocks was always. Think shitty. about as he grows and he gets more popular, maybe his emo, his ego here. corrupts him. Yeah, his emo. His ego. I was going to say, whoa, whoa, wrong show. The tempo, excuse me, the temple, speaking of rock, the tempo, the temple only saw further growth when Jim Jones was appointed to the Indianapolis Human Rights Commission of Indianapolis. Huh? I said Indianapolis twice, but he's on the Indianapolis Human Rights Commission in 1960. He gets appointed by the mayor. Yeah. What? He was a pretty public figure and his reverence in the black community skyrocketed with this. He ignored Mayor Boswell's request to keep a low profile, and he was constantly seeking the limelight. He resisted requests to curtail his public profile even more, and that was cheered on by the NAACP and the Urban League. Oh wow, this is not going to look good. As he was not only maintained his time of as he not only maintained his time of relevance, but began to demand his audience become more militant as well. Okay. His civil rights work didn't end there. He helped the integration of churches, restaurants. Phones, uh, phone companies, the police department, a theater, an amusement park, the Methodist hospital. And when African-American families were the subjects of racial harassment, he would walk those neighborhoods comforting them. See, Tom, you're making me want to defend him at this point. He would even set up stings in an effort to catch discriminatory restaurants. Oh, shit, man. I'm not going to lie. Jim's not the in the early on. Jim is not that bad. He's doing the right thing. It's just like. If it would have just like not stopped here, but if he would have just stayed this amount of famous, I feel like it would have never went left. Yeah. Um, so in 1961, during a stint in the hospital, he was mistakenly placed in the black ward, upon which he refused to be transferred. And while he was in that that area of the hospital, he made bed. Uh, he made their beds, and he even changed bedpans. What? He's he's white. Yeah, I don't know how they did that. <laughs> I think they said they did not mistakenly that do there that. There was an area of the hospital that was um like damaged, so I think that it was an accident that he had placed. No, that was a fuck you. Regardless, that somebody was saying fuck you, Jim. Regardless, that happened. So while he was there, yeah, he changed. He made their beds and changed bedpans of these people. Oh, man. And Jim I mean, and his not wife, my man. Jim and his wife Marceline adopted several children um, that were at least partial um, in their non-white ancestry. He referred to his family as his quote rainbow family. All right. So, so now this is that's kind of weird. This is where it starts to get corrupted a little bit. Um, so Jones had begun to read a lot about this guy named Father Divine. He was the founder of the International Peace Mission Movement. Jones and the members of his church visited Divine several times while he studied Father Divine's writings and sermon recordings. The temple printed Divine's text for their members and began to preach that members should abstain from sex and only adopt children. All right, that's weird. And that sounds a little harsh, but I think to understand Jim Jones developing the way of thinking. Um, that he did, we need to discuss Father Divine and the International Peace Movement. So the peace mission grew out of the ministry of Father Divine, like we said, whose real name, by the way, is George Baker Jr. His name is not Father Divine. <laughs> George but Baker Jr. He was a, he's a big fan of nicknames. He's also a big fan of Charles Fillmore, who led this thing called the New Thought Movement. 
And because this movement in turn influenced Father Divine in a major way, who then influenced Jim Jones in a major way, I want to also give a little background on this new thought movement because it's very, um, it, it plays an important role in the way both of them think. So the New Thought Movement was based on the teachings of Phineas Quimby, an American mesmerist and healer. Quimby's thinking was a bit off the beaten path. A key tenet of his belief system was that illness originated in the mind as a consequence of erroneous beliefs, and that a mind open to God's wisdom would be capable of overcoming any illness. Um, see, the New Thought Movement was centered around these newfangled ideas about spiritual healing. It was, in fact, a very spiritual religious movement. Some of their core beliefs consisted of being... You know, consisted of God is supreme. He's a universal and everlasting. Okay. Divinity dwells within each person. All beings are spiritual. Okay. The highest spiritual principle is loving one another unconditionally and the teaching and healing of one another. And our mental states are carried forward into manifestation and become our experience in daily living. So Father Divine really enjoyed this philosophy of positive thinking and spiritual healing. And he often got into conflicts and altercations with other local ministers, which brought him to prison at one point. When he was released, he continued his sort of new age preaching, and this attracted a following. This following also consisted largely of African-Americans, which only point out because of Jim Jones' attraction to those communities as well. The husband of several followers of Father Divine um, and a group of local ministers were, uh, ended up banding together, and Father Divine was arrested for lunacy and sent to an insane asylum. Wait, hold on. Why was he? Was it for the adoption thing? Father Divine? Yeah. He didn't adopt stuff. What are you talking about? No, you're talking about, uh, you know, remember you said you can't, like, nobody should have oh, sex, no. just have it was adoptions. It was because, um, probably just he was like a spiritual healer and he was a little off the beaten path as well. Oh, so it was just were, kind of his general well, yeah, preachings were placed, a little. It was also probably like the eighteen, the late 1800s, early 1900s. They were like, we're not having none of that shit. Well, Father Divine is active in the early 1900s. Yeah, so they're probably like, we're not having none of that shit. You're going to jail, dude. Come on. So he was released from the insane asylum um, after being determined to be of mentally sound state of mind. In 1914, Father Divine moves from uh, moves from Georgetown. George, I don't know why I wrote that. Let me restart this. In 1914, he moves to New York with some of his followers and reestablishes his this movement, which started to see some perpetual growth. He ran the movement from his house commune, where he held free uh, free weekly banquets. Divine also worked. Um, with his members, helping many of them find jobs. In the early 1930s, his neighbors bring charges of disturbing the peace against him and his followers, and he's arrested again. And here's where we begin to see Father Divine reach his highest point of notoriety. He is convicted on these charges of disturbing the peace, and soon after, the presiding judge dies, and Divine is released. Wait, like, How? Um, so we'll talk about that in a second. Um, they begin to, with the help of the press, perpetuate this idea that the justice, that Justice Smith's death was an act of divine retribution, when in fact, these sources neglected to mention that Smith had prior heart problems. Um, so their unexpected death was not really that unexpected. Okay. This event, however, propels divine into the spotlight and he begins to be able to rent buildings in New York City and he's a popular guest speaker. His popularity only grows from there, and he attracts followers not only from across the state and nation, but around the world. The movement starts to add new branches and is finally deemed the International Peace Mission Movement. Father Divine becomes an international figure with that. The Peace Mission has branches in L.A., Seattle, Washington, and sponsors gatherings in France and Switzerland, as well as Canada and Australia. He's often called upon to provide political endorsements. 
1934, the Peace Mission forms an alliance with the American Communist Party. And the peace mission is practiced. Um, the peace mission practiced a form of communal socialism, which is something that we'll see um, with Jim Jones. Uh, he also, Father Divine, also liked the communist ideals around equality and their commitment towards civil rights. He found them very impressive. In the 1940s, Mother Divine, his wife, she passes away. Very original. And so she dies in seclusion at the peace mission's farms and other rural, upstate New York businesses, collectively named the Promised Land. Strangely, Mother Divine is buried in, the, in an unknown and unmarked grave. And she was a very public figure in the peace mission until the early 1940s, where coverage of her almost entirely disappeared. And no one really knew what had befallen her, her death, until the nearly 70-year-old Father Divine remarried his 21-year-old Canadian secretary, oh, who is known as Sweet Angel. You almost gave me a heart attack. I thought you were going to say his daughter. No. I was nervous as fuck. Father Divine claimed she was his deceased wife reincarnated, which is how is she reincarnated if she's 21 and she was born after or before his wife died, which whatever. Why is he not in a loony house again? Uh, He was, but they thought he was uh, of sound state of mind. And so this marriage between Father Divine and Sweet Angel, I had an itch. So this marriage between Father Divine and Sweet Angel becomes one of the most celebrated events in the history of the peace mission. Part of that is because he introduced this doctrine of reincarnation into Father Divine's preachings. His followers were steadfastly loyal to him. And it's easy to see how they were so easy to come to terms um, with this new facet of their religion when you consider that part of Father Divine's teachers or teachings um, was that he was indeed God in some sense. And to fast forward through the rest, the peace mission went on to sort of formalize themselves and organize churches. Sweet Angel ends up taking over the church after Father Divine passes away, and the peace mission still uh, also exists today. Mm-hmm. And some of their core prominent beliefs consists of the ideas that heaven is a state of consciousness, uh, they believe in the unity of world religions, celibacy and marriage to God, children are raised by assigned guardians, they prohibit smoking, drinking of alcohol, use of obscenity, receiving of gifts, they're huge proponents of public education, ad- abandonment of racial barriers, and they believe in communal ownership of property and gender segregation. So oh, I know, so separate, the gender should be separate. Yes, uh, I know that's a really long sidebar, but this is kind of what Jim's Joan and the temple began to preach as well. I feel like that's weird because they're like pro like races, but then they're like, but the gender should be separated. Yeah, it's so, really weird. So yeah, this is like what Jim Jones begins to like. He comes super enamored with this. In fact, he even tried to assert himself as the leader of the peace mission uh, at some point, but he was thwarted by Sweet Angel. All right, Jim. In 1959, Jim Jones begins to test a new rhetorical style that he learned from Divine that was described as being more fiery and passionate than ever. Sure, you got to love principle, but don't say hate is my enemy. What did they say? What's that word? Hate is my enemy. I got to fight it day and night. What else does the line Love is the only weapon. Shit! Bullshit! Martin Luther King died with love. Kennedy died talking about something he couldn't even understand. Some kind of generalized love. And he never even backed it up. He shut down. Bullshit! Love is the only weapon with which I got to fight. I got a hell of a lot of weapons to fight. I got my claws. I got purposes. I got guns. I got dynamite. I got a hell of a lot to fight. I'll fight. I'll fight. I will fight. I will fight. I will fight. 
It was very successful. His members were captivated. Jones uses this captivation to begin to introduce an us-versus-them mentality. He also begins to interweave communist values into his sermons. He frequently discusses how the temple's home for senior citizens was established on the basis of, quote, from each according to his ability to each according to his need, a quote from Karl Marx's critique of Gotha program. He did this strategically and with purpose. He knew that this Christian audience would draw the connection to the Acts of Apostle, verses 4, 34, and 35, which said, quote, distribution was made to each as, as excuse me, distribution was made to each as any had need. And Jones tries to paint Christianity as being very similar to communism, with a distinct overlap in values. He would cite these passages often trying to depict Jesus as a communist. Whoa. Yeah. So the temple gradually begins to tighten its grip over their members. It requires that members spend Thanksgiving and Christmas um, with their temple family rather than their blood relatives. And Jones at this point introduces this socialist collective referred to as religious communalism in which members would donate their material possessions to the temple in exchange for the temple meeting their needs. The temple had a hard time and saw little success in converting Midwesterners to communist ideals. Really? Even when it was disguised as religion. Jones was a fan of Castro's overthrow of Batista um, in Cuba, and so he traveled to Cuba in 1960 to try and convert poor Cuban black people to move to Indiana to join his congregation. This plan fails. But it's at this point that the temple's messages begin to shift once again to a belief that walked the line between atheism and revering Jones as a Christ-like figure. Every single time he was doing, he was, he was on the right fucking path. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And then out of nowhere, every single time, you know what? Whenever you hear someone say, I'm a Christ-like figure, just go the opposite way. Because that's when you know at some point it's going to go really, really, really bad. Like, really bad. Consider this. So, when you assume, when you look at everything good that he was doing, like, he was literally, like, giving his members food, places to live, Mm -hmm. helping them find jobs. He was, you know, maintaining hospitals. He was breaking racial barriers. All this good stuff. And then people are just, like, so amazed and, and in love with him that it's like, yeah, we'll follow this guy to the ends of the earth. And it makes sense. In that sense, how they could be, like, how they could believe that he was not not necessarily Christ himself or Christ-like, but that he was like this amazing figure that they were incredibly dedicated to. Yeah, because with the the I'm gonna a lot of times try to compare him to the Rock, whatever Rock. Oh, Rock Terrio. Yeah, Rock Terrio. Ooh, kill him. But Rock Terrio. Rock was shitty from the start, which was what made which really confused me as to why people would follow him at the start. Mm-hmm. With Jim, it seems like he's a really, like, he starts off really nice. So it almost makes sense. Like, he, he almost sounds like a regular pastor. like Just very involved. Yeah, just a very yeah. involved pastor. Like, helping out the community. Plus, back then, he was doing things that, like, nobody else was doing. Like, breaking down barriers in that degree and, like, fighting for things that people were not fighting for. And, like, everyone was just looking for, like, that one person on the other side, like, white dude or something to just stand out. But I also feel like, remember, for everyone who hears this, remember, the Father Divine shit is where it starts to go up. Yes. I think if he would have never, ever heard of any of that Father Divine shit, it wouldn't have went well. 
Well, we'll never know. But this is where we're going to end episode one of Jonestown. And so I want to remind you, if you'd like to join the club, you can do so by following us on Instagram and Twitter at Tom and Amir. That's T-O-M-A-N-D-E-M-I-R. We post, you know, relevant stuff there when we can, as well as links to the episodes. And also, it really helps us out when you review us um, on iTunes or wherever else you listen. It helps us show out a lot, so just drop, you know, a rating, review, whatever. Uh, follow us and tweet at us. Let us know what you want to hear or what you think of the episodes. But with that, that's all I have to say, except that... Uh, Next week, um, in our continuation of this series, we're going to get into Jim Jones and his claims um, of the coming apocalypse. All right, like I always say, wow, that's not quite food, kid. See you next week, everybody. Yep.